Welcome to the 1000 Experiments Club podcast. It's your guide to building a culture of experimentation. Our goal is to bring you all the lessons and insights from the leading experts so that you can shortcut your way to creating successful experimentation programs. This podcast is brought to you by AB Tasty, a solution that helps businesses improve their user experiences through experimentation, personalization, and feature management. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the 1000 Experiments Club. I am so lucky to be here today with Lucas Vermeer. Lucas, uh, please introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Lucas. Well, I mean, you've been running experimentation, uh, you know, at booking.com, now at your new company. Please tell us a little bit about, you know, this story, how your background and how you got into experimentation. Ah, okay. So, um... I was raised by two academics, so from a very young age, I was interested in sort of the, the workings of science. And then I saw there was, a, I, I'm, I'm Dutch, uh, and I saw that in Utrecht, the, there was a, a minor, uh, a master's with a minor in artificial intelligence. And this was in the, the 2000s, and um, that seemed like just a, such a super interesting field because it's the confluence of uh, computing science, which is mostly about systems, but then also psychology and a little bit of philosophy, which is more about how do these complex systems operate when we don't fully understand how they work, right? So, so most computing science, you would do what Dijkstra does, which is essentially try to prove that your uh, theory is correct, that your, that your uh, machine does exactly what you thought it would. Um, and, and you can in a, in a classical computational science setting, right? If you want to prove that your algorithm sorts things correctly, then you can prove that. Uh, but in machine learning, this gets a little bit more complicated because we're often dealing with um, fitness functions or with uh, data environments where we don't fully understand what the machine should be doing. And so it's difficult to then prove that it actually does work. So, so I found this a very interesting uh, confluence of, of fields. And so I studied the machine learning but then um, I also struggled with thinking about what sort of uh, company I wanted to work for, what sort of environment I wanted to work in. And so I decided I was going to be a consultant for a while. So as a consultant, I thought I'm going to see lots of different companies from the inside. And sure. then that will help me decide what I work on next. That's a smart move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that was I a smart move. Smart. So I joined a consulting organization uh, working on business intelligence, which at least was close enough to uh, my, my data background. But then after a year and a half, I was given an opportunity to do lots of other projects for a particular um, a machine learning product that this company was selling. Um, and I, I saw lots of different companies from the inside uh, and got a good sense of the sort of environment that I like, which is more of a, not really a startup, but more of a scale up. And then at a conference, I ran into a man <clears throat> who told me about this um, this small scale-up in Amsterdam, which was called uh, Booking.com. And it's not a, not a scale-up anymore, but uh, at the time it was still relatively small. Uh, everyone was in one small floor uh, in an Amsterdam office. Um, and so uh, I talked to them and I, I realized that these guys actually got, they had a good idea of how to use data to make decisions, to make products better for customers. They, they were really thinking about like, how do we change the product in such a way that we collect just the right amount of data that we can use to make the product better? Um, so I decided to join. And uh, initially, I worked on uh, machine learning topics, actually. I worked on ranking, and I worked on recommendation systems. I did some a foray into multi-armed bandits. Uh, and after 
say two years of that, um, the man who was responsible for experimentation at Booking.com was called Jonas Alves. Um, and he left to, he's now founded his own company, uh, AB Smartly. Uh, but he but he left and, and people asked, hey, Lucas, would you like to take over his role? Would you would you want to run uh, experimentation? So I joined uh, I joined the experimentation team uh, and then I did that for about seven years, I'd say. So we started with a really small team, three people, four people. Um, and that just grew. I mean, together with booking, the experimentation team grew right as, as the company scaled, the experimentation also scaled. And so the experimentation team had to scale. By the time I left uh, earlier this year, we'd scaled to I think thirty people. Um, wow. uh, and so, so one of the reasons I left is I I realized that the booking is really at the top of their game when it comes to experimentation, and that meant that for me, I I, I felt like I was done learning, <laughs> or in the sense that I I wasn't learning anything that I could use at other companies. Sure. Um, so so I wanted to join a place where there is enough appetite to get started with experimentation at scale, but there isn't really experimentation at scale yet. Mm -hmm. so that's when I joined Vista, which is a company that has uh, data flowing through their veins as well. They have a lot of great people that want to do uh, interesting stuff with that data, but they didn't really have an experimentation strong culture. Uh, and so I, I joined Vista to build that, which is what I've been doing for the last uh, six months. Yeah. And then uh, I'm also doing some consulting on the side. So I'm helping a bunch of companies, um, very, very limited hours. So, so I have like two or three hours a week. And then we do office hours. So these are companies who are also building their own culture. They have their own internal team. And then I dial in once a week and we talk about what they're struggling with, what they're doing. And that's a lot of fun because then I finally get what I wanted all those years ago, right? I finally get to see all of these companies from the inside. Yeah. And it's like that diversity that uh, that really helps me grow and learn. You know, going back a little bit to when you left Booking, you know, 30 people, big team. Mm. Why do you think Booking got to that point so quickly? What was it specifically about this company versus another one that made it, you I know, don't, that's... I don't think it got to that point quickly. I mean, Booking started okay. running experiments <clears throat> February, 2005. Okay. Right. So, so they got the well, they were ahead. No, you would, would you say they were ahead of what other companies were doing at that time? I think they were closely following Amazon at the time. Okay. So I think Amazon was ahead of everyone. Sure. Uh, Ronnie Kohavi was, I mean, you interviewed Ronnie before. Yes, right? we so did. We have a, yeah. Uh, they were doing experimentation. I think Jeff was a big driver behind that. Okay. Um, Ronnie gave a presentation about experimentation at Amazon once. And one of the founders of Booking.com was there. And immediately fired off an email back to his team saying, like, Amazon is doing this. We got to do this as well. So they started running experiments in 2005. And you have to, have to understand that the first, at the time, they had five developers, I believe. So okay. right, it wasn't like they weren't a big company. They were really a, a startup. And this is, I mean, sometimes people say, well, we can't run experiments like Booking.com because we're not as big we're as small. That's right. We're small, right? We're a yeah. startup. And I, I have to explain to them that, that Booking started running experiments when they had five developers in total in the entire company, right? Incre so, incredible. It, that excuse doesn't work. Exactly. Right? Well, that's great that you're saying that because that's often the excuse, right? It's like, oh, right. we have yeah. the resources or too small, yeah. et cetera. And then no the kidding. first the first eight years that Jonas, uh, so Jonas Alves, the all the time that he was running uh, experimentation and booking, 
uh, that first eight years, I don't think they ever had more than three or four people on experimentation. Right? Okay. It took them a few years to really get it off the ground. Then it took them another five years or so to really scale it up to hundreds of experiments. By the time Jonas left, I think they were at a thousand concurrent or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I like my time there was about six years, seven. Um, I, we scaled it beyond that, but yeah. the scale wasn't anymore really the issue because you get to a point where the experiments isn't the friction, it's building the product that's the friction. Sure. So, so anytime you want to run an experiment, you actually have to build the feature that you want to experiment on. Mm -hmm. That became more of a, a bottleneck for us than, than the experimentation itself. Like okay. the teams would spend almost no time setting up the experiments because that was made very easy. But the time was spent actually building the feature itself. Okay. Yeah, because you went beyond just um, kind of fixing or optimizing what was there, but you were just building that scientific method into your your features and your ideas. There comes a point where you've tried all the different button colors, right? Sure. And, <laughs> all and, the sizes configured. And although, like, although optimization and sort of tweaking the UI should be an important part of an experimentation program, I was always much more interested in, it, in those experiments that really changed the company direction. So, if, you, so if, if, if I was talking to business leaders and they would ask, like, how do we how do we run experiments? I would ask, like, what are the biggest questions that are driving your business case at the moment? Like, what are the biggest assumptions that are behind your strategic planning? That's not like, what color should the button be? That's more along the lines of, should we be selling flights? Yes or no, right? Should we change our, in the case of Vista, should we change the way that we print uh, uh, ink onto fabric in a way that uh, and, and does that what impact does it have on consumers right so so these are much bigger questions that need uh, answered and i was always much more interested in those things because i think they have more impact on uh on the company direction and the company bottom line ultimately so and, you're and, testing and, the, the products and services basically and not just no. okay not just the channel but like the, the basic offering is this something yeah, exactly. worth investing just, in? and that's why i say like when once you start trying to do that then you come to a point where you're not really running many more experiments to be honest mm -hmm. because the experiments just become bigger right okay. the, 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 the it becomes more important that the experiment is executed correctly it becomes more important that you think about what this experiment is actually doing and so uh, you invest more time in each individual experiment because there's more depending on that individual experiment and of course in the same six years we also i mean this this, this wasn't me and my team but the the, the great thing about uh, booking and also about vista is that there's this this idea of uh autonomy for teams and decentralization of idea generation at vista they call this inversion of control right the mm -hmm. idea that team can control their own destiny that they they have to they don't have to follow some basic procedures to make sure that we all like work on the same thing but overall they get to control a lot of what they work on and a booking this this had the consequences that oftentimes different teams would build something and then come to meet my team and say, well, we, we made this way for copywriters to run experiments in a very simple way without the developer involved mm -hmm. using a copy system. <laughs> We'd go, great, that's awesome. Let's scale it out. And so we ended up with a, with a copy system where a, a copywriter could run an A-B test without any involvement from uh, developers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that obviously is a, is a nice way to sort of run more experiments if that's what you want but sure. i always saw that as a sort of a um, 
tangential goal. Right? The goal should be to run experiments to have a lot of impact on the future direction of the company. And how do you manage in terms of the complexity that might create internally? Let's say, you know, um, I don't know, let's say uh, somebody wants to build a feature and because they really think that, you know, based on some insights that, you know, this is something worth testing. Um, does everybody on the experimentation team have the ability to interface with, I don't know, a development team and, and, and help prioritize things? Or how does that work internally when you have a product team and an experimentation team? Are they integrated? How does that work? So this is uh, interesting because um, I think you had a uh, name now. You had Johnny, John? Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. Longman. Yeah. Yeah, Longman. Yeah, and he, yeah. he talked about this distinction. Like I agreed with like ninety nine percent of the things he said, but there was yeah. one key assumption that he made that I very strongly disagree with. He made a distinction between product development and an experimentation team. Okay. And I don't think that the distinction should exist. Okay. I think the uh, the product development should be the teams that are running experiments because they are the ones that are making changes. They are the ones that should understand the customers. They are the ones where the experimentation and the results should drive their decisions. Sure. And so this distinction gives me the idea that uh, there, or should give the impression that there are product teams who are not experiment, right? Who, who are not experimenting, Yes. who are not using experiments to, to drive their roadmap. And I don't think those teams should exist. I don't think you should have product teams that are not experimenting. Yeah. And conversely, I do think there should be an experimentation team, but that experimentation team is not running experiments in the same way that your uh, core funnel team is not purchasing your products. What sure. I mean by that is that the, the experimentation team should be responsible for the tooling, they should be responsible for governance, they should be responsible for education, and they should be helping the product teams run experiments autonomously. But that means that uh, the central experimentation team is not running experiments themselves, right? Okay. They, they might be involved in experiments in the same way that you sometimes buy a product from your own website just to see what the funnel is like, to see yeah. where you think the problems are, right? Mm -hmm. And they might be helping teams when they get stuck in the same way that your customer service might help your customers when they get stuck. Yeah. But we have to distinguish between the teams that are responsible for running the experiments and using that to inform their product development and an experimentation team which is more on the meta level thinking about how is our experimentation scaling what are currently the friction points that our people are having what is stopping them from running better experiments what are the risks that we have or that we see to our uh, experimentation strategy it's very interesting because it really uh it's 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 almost an enablement right it's an enablement an experimentation enablement team that also helps keep the rules straight and helps everybody hopefully empower people to to, to incorporate. I, I always say to my team, we are a product development team and our product is experimentation and our users are the internal teams that are running experiments and our metrics should be finding ways to measure how much friction they are experiencing and how many experiments they're running and what impact those experiments are having. But we're doing that in the same way that a product development team would measure how many, how much traffic do we have and how many conversions do we have and how much revenue are we making, right? They're, they're looking at these metrics as a way of thinking about how are our users behaving? Mm -hmm. And then they do product development, improve that customer experience. But so, uh, so does that mean, so for example, the product managers, uh, I mean, were, were they embracing this, this philosophy? Were they 
you know, re, you know, working with the experimentation team, saying, okay, uh, this is my my roadmap. These are the these are the experiments that we're we're performing. Does that align? I mean, how is that working? I can speak for both Booking and Revista, sure. and in both both cases. Um, product managers are rather self-sufficient and autonomous. So they are creating their own roadmaps with experiments in it. Okay. Um, okay. The experimentation team is uh, proactively looking out rather than responding to requests from the product teams. Okay, okay. Right? If, the, if the product teams always have to go to the experimentation team, that, that doesn't scale. Yeah. So rather in the case of, of booking, I think I've trained like, a thousand or two thousand people while I was there, yeah. uh, and so these people were—they were running their own roadmaps. They were doing their own prioritization, uh, and we were just looking at that from sort of from the outside, thinking about what what is currently blocking them. Mm-hmm. How many customers reach out to the product development team directly? Does that <laughs> does that happen? No. <laughs> no, right? No, so, no, it doesn't. <laughs> why not? And 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 so why why would you not run your experimentation program in the same way? Why why would the users of the experimentation platform reach out to the platform developers directly sure. rather than using all of the materials that are available to them. So using the, the tooling itself, which hopefully is self-explanatory, sure. uh, using the documentation that comes with the tooling, using the education material that comes with the tooling, reaching out through support channels, uh, if there are any, but they, but there really shouldn't be a need, at least at scale, right? I'm, I'm talking about scaled experimentation, right? Sure, I, sure, I, sure. I totally understand that if you're just beginning, then the product managers won't have these skills yet. Sure. So you'll, you'll use more uh, handholding, but ultimately the goal would be, I think, for, for these teams to not interact directly at all. Sure. And I just want to maybe go into two questions. Uh, one that kind of goes into, you know, you mentioned a little bit about training for, for product managers. Um, I'm not sure if, if, you know, you're involved in that process. How do you train someone on experimentation or are there um, frameworks that you recommend to uh, product managers or, or processes that they should follow in order to, you know, structure their experimentation within their roadmap or their general guidelines? So I've never really ventured into the area of roadmapping or, or prioritization because I think those things are, uh, I, I know that people mix that with experimentation. Right. Sure. So they, there's there's a lot of material out there where this is mixed with with the experimentation approach, but I think this is actually general product development road mapping. Sure. This, this is part of the remit of product development, not of experimentation. Sure. Um, my trainings focused mostly, so the ones I did together with uh, Rodri Kunders uh, at Booking was, um, we started out with a very high level overview of what is the scientific method, right? What what is this idea behind writing hypotheses? thinking about a way to test it, testing it, using the analysis, and how does that feed back into your, into your theory? Uh, and then we would zoom into examples, of experiments that we had run, where we were trying to teach people the words to use to talk about okay. experiments. It was a language course, mm-hmm. but also how to discuss with other people what they thought the experiment was doing. Because the, the reality is that these experiments are a way to test ideas Mm-hmm. But the but the results will always be a theory laden or open to interpretation. So okay. an experiment is not objective, right? I mean, often people say that data is objective. It is not. Someone decided what experiment to run, how to run it, what data to collect, what metrics to select, etc. So there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into running an experiment, even if the results themselves are objective in the sense that they weren't someone's opinion, they're objectively what we measured. 
that doesn't mean that the interpretation of those results doesn't have subjectivity with it. Of course, so we, that's interesting. Yeah, what we try to teach people is this okay. distinction between the objectivity of the uh, numbers or the, the reliability of the numbers and the interpretation of those numbers and what it means for customers. And so we used examples where the numbers themselves were deliberately clear while the interpretation was deliberately vague. Oh, and my wow. favorite was one of, the, one of the experiments we used, which was... Um, um, I won't mention the specific example, but um, we picked this because it would often result in a divided room in the sense that when we asked the participants of the training, which is usually around 20 people, would you ship this? Would you put this into production or would you stop this? Would you stop this line of thought? Then the room was often divided about 50-50. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, both Roderick and I could argue either side of the debate. And this was very deliberate because that meant that we could sort of steer the conversation and make sure that the room understood that even though there's no discussion about what the numbers are, there can still be discussion about what the numbers mean and how to interpret them and what it means for customers. And that was the thing that we were really trying to explain to, to our users in that, uh, in that experiment. That's what, that brings me to another point, by the way, which is that... Um, I think of experimentation as a social enterprise in the same way that uh, Thomas Kuhn, when he wrote uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he said science, science is sort of a social enterprise rather than a, a single line leading to the truth. Um, and the sort of the negative way of framing this is saying like it, um, for a new theory to take hold, all of the proponents of the old theory need to die. Like a generation of scientists needs to <laughs> stand up right, and, and run with this new theory. Sure. And I, I think when you think about how experimentation is used in a company, then this social aspect of experimentation is almost just as important as the data aspect of it. And so a lot of the tools and a lot of the material that you see on the market is focused on reliably collecting numbers and then showing them to users, assuming that they can then in isolation autonomously make decisions. And this, I mean, that's one aspect of experimentation. It's a very important aspect of sure. experimentation, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's a reason that Ronnie wrote the, and, uh, and Ya and, um, and Diane wrote yeah. the Trustworthy Online Controlled Experiments, which is, I mean, it's a great book. You should all read it. Uh, but that's only one part of the puzzle. Once you have those, uh, you have a setup where people can run reliable experiments and collect numbers, then they have to make sense of the numbers. What do the numbers mean? What decision should we make? And that is not an objective thing. That is very subjective. And so I always say that there needs to be um, social mechanisms around the experimentation tool, as uh, ideally as close to the experimentation tool as possible. And so at Booking, the tooling that we built was essentially, you know, I think we built like Facebook on top of the existing experiment tool, right? So Jonas put an amazing mechanism in place for measuring things. Mm -hmm. And then there was a very limited ability to comment, to add comments to individual experiments. And we added things like threading so that people could reply on threads and say, well, I, this part of the experiment I don't understand, or this particular setting I have disagreement with. We added uh, likes so that people could say, this comment is very useful, right? Other people should look at this comment. We added uh, a diff so that if you made a change to the experiment, it would appear as a comment with a diff showing what the change actually was. So okay. if you change the, say, expected duration of an experiment, saying, well, I, I was planning to run it for two weeks, but now that two weeks are over, 
I'm planning to run it for four weeks, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That would appear as a comment on the experiment itself so that other people could reply and say, well, you realize that your false positive rate has now gone up because you've changed your expected duration while the experiment was running after you looked at the results. And so these, these sort of like integration of the social aspect of experimentation together with the results is what I think drove the, the experimentation culture at booking to the next level. Because, That's amazing. Because it's Isn't one thing to have amazing tooling. It's yeah. one thing to have very small, pe smart people who really understand how experimentation works. You have to have those people talk. Sure, Lucas, I think, well, you've said so much there that I find um, really, really interesting. I mean, the social aspect, you know, I haven't thought about it that way, but then it makes sense to even almost imagine having not committees, but just like experiment reviews where yep. You have people saying, okay, here's the experiment, here's the duration, here are the things that changed, here are the metrics we decided to track, here are the results, yep. here are a few um, ideas as to what we should do next. Let's yep. let's look at the, let's debate this and actually look at, hey, are there you know reasons that we can come up with for XYZ decision? And is that supported and on why and how? This is this is next level to say, okay, like, like let's let's worry about the decisions as well that we're making there's such a focus on and, and rightly so on the process on the controls yes on the statistics that you're using how you're doing it how you're you know how your data set is is it you know is it something reliable etc but then there's not enough attention i think to the aftermath of that and like okay so let's sit here and there isn't just one response you, right you there is the aftermath I call it the whole objective like it's not the aftermath that's the whole point <laughs> <laughs> the whole point of an experiment at least in a business setting is to then sure. make drive a decision and that the decision then needs to be supported by the evidence at hand in some way sure. and that is the whole reason why we're running the experiment it's not sure. the aftermath sure. right it's sure. the, no you're right yes but core, i think you get caught up issue. <laughs> we get caught up in like the 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 this the technicality of like uh the experiment and how to do it and what's in it yeah. Uh, but there yeah, is so, so at, so yeah. at booking this the, there were sessions run by product managers within their own domain where they would talk about the experiments they had run in a, in a given period and talk about the decisions they had made in this in exactly the way that you describe okay right and part of the role, role of the tooling i think is to make that process easy sure. to make it easy for these teams to get the data that they need to run that program when i in my consulting work when i talk to clients there's a lot of clients who have very similar process where they have a standard way to create, uh, say, PowerPoint slides that show what the experiment was doing and what the decision was so that it can share it with a wider audience. Okay. Uh, and at Vista, we're starting a program that we call Learning Circles, which is exactly the same thing again, right? Where people come and bring their own experiment. We talk about what they think they saw, what they learned, and, and, uh, and, and how to proceed. And so um, what, I've, what I find fascinating is that when I look under the market, because at Booking, one of the reasons I wanted to leave is that Booking has their own experimentation tool, which is like, as far as I can tell, the best on the planet. Right. I, I yeah. say that with, <laughs> with, with pride, but also, um, if anyone has a better one, like I'd love to say it. <laughs> but that's that's a result of building it for sixteen years, right? It's just sure. an, an enormous amount of time and investment that has gone into that. And I wanted to see what was out there in, on the market, like what can you buy off the shelf, what products exist. And I'm 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 astounded actually by that a lot of these products seem very focused on 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 two things. One is um, the ability for people to make changes without development involved. 
sure. which I find fascinating. Why would you make product development changes without product development involved? Right. Mm -hmm. There's these tools that are on the market that say a marketer without a developer can make a change to the product. And I'm, I'm just asking myself, like, why does this marketer not have access to development? Like if they if they're supposed to change the product, they should have a product. They should have a developer on their team. So, so I, I think this is solving a, a problem that shouldn't exist in the first place, which is more of an organizational problem. And the other focus I see is on uh, on fancy statistics, uh, if I may call it that way, yeah, sure. uh, which is like how how are the results analyzed and how are the results presented so that people can interpret them. But there seems to be almost no uh, sort of emphasis on then collecting how the numbers were interpreted and how the decision was made. And so the tool focuses fully on making sure that the user understands what the numbers are mm -hmm. and says, well, you know, you do with that whatever you want, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pay attention or even document what the decision was, which is sort of the opposite of what Booking was doing because the statistics that Booking uses were the most basic frequentist like uh, approach. There was some covariate uh, adjustment and there was, a lot of work done on making sure that the numbers are correct. So their, their statistic was rather heavy. But in presenting numbers to users, it was relatively straightforward. And we spent more time on, on than if the product manager is ready to make a decision or the copywriter or whatever. And they click that button and they say, yes, I'm ready to make a decision. The UI then says, here's what you said, said you thought was going to happen. Let's compare that to what actually happened. Here's mm -hmm. what did we, in an automated fashion, think that what that means mm -hmm. do you have a different opinion what do you think this means yeah. what decision are you making as a result of that and can you please motivate in a few words why you think that decision is the correct one and we would store this together with the experiment results in the tool so if you go back to an experiment that was running a year ago yeah. you can see the results you can also see when the decision was made, by who the decision was made, what the decision was, what their motivation was, and what the numbers were that drove that motivation. And so we thought that those things are far more important to collect than having, say, fancy statistics. Sure. But I think that's what you're getting at is really interesting, even for me, you know, coming from an experimentation software. So I, I you know, I take your feedback to heart. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I could, I could, you know, I could try to debate you and <laughs> uh, the advantages. Um, no, I think, I think the, the philosophy, if I could just uh, maybe you know, speak for maybe platforms out there in general. I think the starting point has been, okay, let's build, let's focus on the science of it, which is, okay, you know, hypothesis, testing, result, control group, right? Which is a very yeah. kind of basic, right? And let's try to make it so that it's easier to do. Um, right. yeah. But I think it's also because of the place where companies are starting, the companies that haven't thought about experimentation or haven't, in, you know, properly invested in or really believed in it to the to, to the degree that maybe a booking.com has or, or a Netflix or an Airbnb or an Amazon. And, mm -hmm. and they're just starting now to try to dabble in it without putting their feet full in. And I think, you know, the, the, the philosophy of build for a lot of these platforms is, OK, how can we make it? so that what at, they will get to a point where they won't need us anymore and they will build their own. Uh, mm -hmm. And the philosophy behind the build is more of an enablement. I think experimentation, um, it's, a, it's a fascinating field. Actually, there's, you, can, you can think of this in, in different levels. Sure. You know? so, and and I, I try to distinguish three levels usually, which is sort of the, um, the, the scientific method. Sure. 
which is very similar to the build measure learn loop that uh, that the lead startup talks about for example um then there's the the design of experiment aspect so this is more of the statistical design of experiment and then there's the technical execution of the design now the the build measure learn loop or the scientific method aspect is agnostic to the actual test you're using sure. so it could be an a b test it could be a pre post test it could mm -hmm. be a uh, i don't know a, a one off right if you say mm -hmm. no black swans exist then a proof against that theory would be just finding a single one sure. right that's sufficient that's sufficient sure. and so in 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 i think the the method the build measure learn loop and the scientific method is something that companies can get uh, familiar with and that they can practice with how to incorporate it into their product development without any a b testing right sure. a b testing is just one way of uh, of uh, fueling that loop sure. but it's not the only way to run an experiment of course yeah. the, the, the statistical aspects or the design of experiment a b testing or, or controlled experiments are interesting because they are there are two things one is they're relatively easy to scale in the sense that the, the the it's such a constrained paradigm that in a technical sense they're they're relatively easy to to, to scale because they uh, as long as you have a centralized coin flip the execution is often uh, the the same right there's no there's no catch uh, or no gotchas when you're analyzing the results in the same way that there are with say a, a regression discontinuity design which often requires a lot more uh, bespoke work and then the the technical execution is the how do you actually run this controlled experiment in an online setting so how yeah. do we determine who the user is how is the coin flip implemented how do we make sure that the assignment is stable how do we collect the results and all of these things um now i think from a platform point of view so from your point of view um your product is the technical enablement of mm -hmm. a type of design sure and and you might even implement multiple types of design right so you might not only have a b testing you can have other uh, things as well but if, for a company to really become mature they also need to understand that some designs are more uh, applicable than others in certain cases sure. so for example when i joined vista um, people said well we're not really running that many experiments yet we want you to help us scale and i went looking around the company and i found these pockets of people who are running uh, experiments in, in in fully autonomous right that that was invisible to anyone else in the company that in my mind they were experiments they were just not controlled or randomized controlled experiments they were for example there's one group that is running experiments where they uh, they flip a coin per day so rather than randomly assigning users to a and b they assign days to a and b and under some assumptions about spillover you can actually use this to run uh, experiments to, uh, to measure the the impact in the same way that you would maybe test but uh, until i joined this wasn't considered to be part of the remit of the experimentation group because it wasn't an a b test and I, I came in and said, well, actually, these guys are running the most experiments of any group inside of Vista because they're running a lot of these because they have figured out a way to make this scale. And I think that is sort of changing the mindset from experimentation being only about AB, but also being about other forms of experimentation, so right. either regression, discontinuity, or um, synthetic counterfactual, or like, any, any type should fall within that bucket. And the reason for that is that although the technical execution and the statistical design are different, there's, there's parallels, but they are different. Yeah. The build, measure, learn loop 
and the the scientific method is still the same. Sure. So in terms of product development, when a product developer, or a product manager has an idea, and they think about how can I test this idea, right? They should have a portfolio of options available to them, where maybe an A/B test is the right way, maybe a regression and discontinuity is the right way, maybe just collecting one piece of feedback from a customer is the right way, right? But they should have a portfolio of options of different ways that they can experiment to close that loop uh, and to learn. For them to make that choice, um, I mean, they have to have some some pretty solid understanding of, of, of test types, right? I mean, they have to yep. really understand. So you do have to have somewhat of a of a statistics background, at least to be able to understand those things, right? They would have to have available, and this is the thing that we focused on at Booking as well. We, we try to teach people what what sort of types there are available and what their strengths and weaknesses are. For example, what assumptions they make. Sure. So I, I'm, at Vista, I, I'm doing the same. I'm, I mean, the fun thing about Vista is I'm starting from like day one, right? This it's is like a, cool. you're, this you're is a professor, reason I joined. internal professor. Awesome, right? <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I get to reinvent everything. And so one of the first things I started writing is what are the different types of experiments that are available? What are their strengths and weaknesses? What are the additional assumptions that you're making? When can you use one? When can you use the other? And you can do this without statistics. This is the point, right? <clears throat> These product managers, they actually don't have to know how to compute a B-value. This is not relevant to the job at hand. To pick the tool available, like you have to know which, which tools are in the tool set and what their relative strengths and weaknesses are. Sure. So just sure. like if you're, if, you're, if you're building a house and you see a nail, right? you have to know- Which this, kind, yeah. This, this time I will use a hammer and not a screwdriver. And the reason I do that is because I noticed that it doesn't have a screw head, so I can't really use a screwdriver, right? And that has nothing to do with how the hammer was made or how the nail was built, right? The, get these it, yeah, get it. Implementation details yeah. are not relevant for, for choosing the tool. Very interesting. So. I think what 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 uh, you're saying also is that just the well, we can get into the culture of experimentation, but just the philosophy behind the scientific method and understanding, you know, the, the build cycle and and understanding how experimentation plays a role in those different phases, and then afterward, it's like on the operational plan. Okay, when you're looking at, you know, your roadmap or what you're building. You know, here are different ways that you can test. Here are different types of, uh, of of strategies to test, and you know, choose the best fit, and then yeah. run your experiment, document everything, and then share your results and also share your conclusions to make sure that you know, let yourself be challenged on that as well, right? Also, the results and what you actually decide to do, and how you know whether that was the right thing or not. And I'm assuming then there are experiments about the results of experiments, right? So then you test, you decided to implement a certain result, and then you can also test that, right? So. Yeah, it's, it's a never end the cycle. Eh? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you put a finger on something really important there. You said, you talked about sharing and, and, and the scientific method. If you think about it, like the scientific method itself, when you think about all of the different fields that are out there, psychology, biology, medicine, um, physics, they all use different technical techniques. They all run different kinds of experiments, but there are a lot of things between these fields that are shared. What are the things that are shared? The idea that before you run an experiment, you should pre-register what you're going to do. is mm -hmm. shared between all of those fields, right? Sure. The idea that 
once you have collected your results, you should analyze them and then document what you have done together with what the results were as part of one document. Now, in the scientific community, that's a paper, right? Or right, you, you would write an academic paper. No one writes an academic paper that only describes the results. Right? You would That's not. That's true. Get yeah, you would never. Journal <laughs> that is sort of sure. of any level of quality. <laughs> like um, we uh, we managed to do detect the Higgs boson. Full stop. Right. Yeah. No, you describe you describe exactly <laughs> what your theory was, what your approach was, your method in the scientific lingo, and then what the results were and how you interpret them. That's in the discussion section, right? And right. then you put all of those together in one single document. Right, that is shared amongst all of those fields. Then what happens? You just put it out there? No, you have it reviewed. There is a peer review process where other people who are knowledgeable in this field also get a chance to look at that and go like, this is total hogswash, right? <laughs> this, this should not be published, it's total crap. Or they give you feedback and say, well, actually we have some minor revisions. You should probably reference this other uh, document or you should talk about this other experiment, right? And so there is a review process and then we get to publication. Right. And this this can work in an organization as well. Right. And I think a part of the role of an experimentation group is to think about what governance do we put in place to make this possible? How do we make sure that people clearly pre-register what they're trying to do? How do we make sure that people describe what they did together with what the results were in one document? And how is that reviewed and how is that shared? I think that is the um, that is the remit of experimentation in an organization. Well, something that, you know, I was going to ask, but now I feel like the, the question isn't even relevant anymore, um, was about, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the culture uh, of experimentation and leadership and, and how to address, you know, how to change the mentality from, you know, the hippo mentality, right? So the highest paid person makes the decision and, and you know, this is kind of the hierarchy of, of the way that, you know, most companies uh, work, but what I feel like is the case here when, when I'm listening to you is that there's this, this structure and these processes and these guides and this instruction that's built in where you no longer are talking about, uh, oh, I have an idea and my idea is the right one, let's test it. It's more about we're running these experiments as scientists and we're not even, we're not so focused on what I think is right. We're really just focused on what the results are. And let's use that insight to help us go faster or go be better. And I feel like that's where the mentality is. It's not really like, oh, I'm a product manager and I know what to build. It's more like, oh, here, here is, here's my idea. Let me test it. But I really care about the results and then what I do after. So the focus is different. What would you say about that? So much to unpack here. I mean, this is a great question. Uh, so, so one is I think uh, good scientists as well as good product developers do actually have an opinion on what they think works. Right? Okay. That we should not sort of, uh, there should still be a hippo in that. Okay. <laughs> Someone is still deciding like, what are we going to test? But then at the same time, we should have a humble hippo. Right. We should we should have one, someone who is willing to then say, well, I think this is what we should be doing, but I don't know whether customers are going to agree. So let's test to see whether actually we do get the response. And so on the one end, you have to be opinionated on figuring out what you, you think the direction should be, what we should be testing. But on the other end, you have to be humble and listen to what actually results are, what, what works and what doesn't. And then you need to be flexible and, and adjust to the feedback that you get. And you mentioned, you mentioned roadmaps before. 
And I think what, what I find fascinating, and I've been thinking about this recently, is that in product development, I, I, I'm not sure if hippos are the biggest threat to experimentation culture. I'm, I'm starting to think that roadmaps are, are one of the biggest threats. And the reason I say that is that when people in product development talk about roadmaps, um, they're not actually roadmaps. I, I, I had this real, realization recently when I was looking at a map, think about what a map looks like. If you ask Google Maps to give you driving directions from your house to your office, if you have one, I work fully remote, so I don't have an office anymore. Uh, so one of the great things of working at Vista. But, uh, but if you have an office and you ask Google Maps, Maps, like what is the, give me directions, does it give you a single sequential list of steps? Uh, yes, but it also gives you two other options that you could try. And it shows you a full overview of the, of the map with all of the different routes and options that you can try. And you can even like take a diversion. Yeah. Right? And when you move, it proposes a new way to get to that final. And if you deviate, <laughs> it gives you an alternative, right? That's an actual roadmap. Now think about what product development roadmaps look like. Do they have a bifurcation of routes? No. They just have a first we do this, then we'll do this, and then we'll do that, and then we'll be at the goal. Right? They are, it's an absolute linear wish list of steps that we hope will bring us towards the goal. And I, don't, I think this is a, a threat to an experimentation mindset because it means that once you complete that first step and it doesn't work, it's not the hippo that says, no, we're going to ship it anyway. It is the collective commitment to the roadmap that makes people go, yeah, I can see that the experiment said that it didn't work, but the roadmap. Uh, yeah. We don't want to fall behind on the roadmap. We committed to this roadmap. We agreed with other people that this is what we're going to do. And so it becomes this strong force that is even stronger than a hippo because it's not one person. It is this like vague, abstract idea that we want to execute against this timeline that we all agreed was a good idea. And, and it gets worse the longer the roadmap is because you have spent weeks, if not months, writing that roadmap. You have invested a lot of time and effort into making sure that the roadmap is correct. And so when you get to that first checkpoint and it turns out that the roadmap is wrong, it is very difficult to change direction. Yeah. Right? In, the, in the book, uh, Leadership is Language, and the author talks about escalation of commitment. The more time and energy you, you have invested into committing to something, the more difficult it is to change course. And it, to me, roadmap, the prettier the roadmap, the bigger the commitment to the roadmap and the more difficult it becomes uh, to change direction. So should we get rid of roadmaps? I think we should have roadmaps that uh, acknowledge the fact that there is uncertainty. Sure. Right. Yeah. The, the reality, I think, in product development is that think back to Google Maps, right? Google Maps knows where all the roads are. But mm -hmm. if we're a development product, we have no idea. It's more like if you look, think, think back to maps in the 1600s, right? The, there was maybe there's an island over here. There's probably sea monsters here, right? We don't know exactly what's over here. Right? And so the, the map for these sailors was uh, some parts were known, but most of the map was unknown. I mean, maybe you know the relative position of things, but you don't know what's in between them. Sure. And that's much closer to what actually is happening in product development. I think a lot of product development, we are building new things and we don't really know where to go. And so a roadmap is actually a terrible metaphor for product development because a roadmap only works 
if you know the exact plan, you know all of the roads and where they are and how long they are. And ideally, if you're Google Maps, you even know where the traffic jams are, right? Which yeah. is our planning. And in practice, we don't know these things in product development until we start building them and start exposing customers to them. That's why the build, measure, learn loop works, because then we take a few steps and then we check whether we're actually headed in the right direction in the same way that a sailor in the 1600s would get on a boat, sail north for a while and go, huh, there's no island here, right? That's (laughs) wrong, right? And so I think think that is a much better paradigm. So, So yeah, I think Roadmaps aren't necessarily bad, but they should acknowledge the fact that there is inherent uncertainty. Yes. So the, the deliverable for that. Yeah. should be clarifications of that uncertainty mm-hmm. rather than say in two months time, we will deliver feature X, Y, Z. You will say things like in two weeks time or in two months time, we will have checked whether we can get customers to respond to X, Y, Z in such and such a way. Right, so so you you incorporate the uncertainty and you incorporate the experiment in the deliverables of the roadmap. Sure, sounds sounds like a plan. <laughs> I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm gonna pitch this. <laughs> well, I mean, just to be clear, right? I, I'm not saying this is easy. Right? No, I'm, sure. I mean, I'm I'm standing by the sign lines, almost saying, "Well, that what you're doing doesn't make any sense." That doesn't mean I have a solution or that I'm going to make your life easier. I'm just saying that from a sort of theoretical standpoint trying to clarify all of the uncertainty at the beginning of your product development when you're writing your roadmap doesn't seem like a viable strategy because I don't think you can you can know what's going to happen. And so writing a singular uh, sequential roadmap doesn't feel like something that's going to work. Sure, sure. And um, Luke, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your flywheel uh, paper that you oh. recently co-authored? If you have a little little bit of yeah a- so so this was joint work with uh, Alexander Fibrian at, uh, at Microsoft and uh, Benjamin Arai and uh, Pavel Dmitriev um, and it was sort of a, a follow-on of a paper that we wrote a few years ago that was called the evolution uh, the experimentation growth model which was a way for companies to sort of assess where they're at in terms of their experimentation culture and we did that by breaking down um, the components of an experimentation culture into uh, seven components, things like technical enablement and uh, education and these sort of things, team independence. Um, and one of the feedbacks we've got on that paper is that this is great. Now we can assess where we are, but how do we actually improve? Like, where do, where do we start? How do we, how do we begin? And so the flywheel paper is, a, um, is, an, is an attempt to sort of help companies get started and sort of accelerate the experimentation by positioning it as, a, as an in, uh, investment follows value, follows investment flywheel. So, so you want these different steps in the flywheel to feed into each other, just like the Amazon flywheel, uh, to sort of escalate the speed at which um, experimentation grows. So, so you start out with say, uh, we want to run more experiments so that we gain more insights, so that we get more interest in experimentation, so we can afford to invest more in, ex- in experimentation infrastructure, which will then allow us to reduce the human cost of experimentation, which will allow us to run more experiments. And now we're back at step one, yeah. right? And so the idea is that this thing, if you if you if you get it started, which is the first half of the paper, like how do you get this the flywheel started, then it will push itself. And the challenge of a, all the way in the beginning of the interview, we talked about like, what is the role of a central experimentation team? Mm -hmm. And I would argue that the role of the central team is not to run experiments, but to look at that flywheel and to figure out where is currently the most friction, 
what of which of these steps is reducing is is slowing us down mm -hmm. and to then drive investments in that area so that this flywheel can spin faster so if they're noticing that say um the human cost to experimentation is very high so uh, data scientists are spending a lot of time doing manual work then the central team should be automating those tasks so that the human cost goes down or if they notice that uh, interest in experimentation is very low then they should invest in programs that in, that increase awareness and interest in experimentation. For example, we talked earlier about sharing results, right? That's one way to increase interest. And so the central team should be looking at this entire flywheel and then thinking about where do we invest so that we reduce friction so that the flywheel spins faster. And one of the things I really like, like the example, I, I talked to customers about this as well in, the, in my consulting work. And one of the things I really like is that it's the, and I think this was Pavel's, or Alexander, I don't remember who should, now this is the thing about writing a paper. There's four people writing the paper. <laughs> I don't remember who came up with what idea, but there's this one thing in there that I really love, which is um, the first experiment that you run should not be something that is uh, ideally not something that is aimed at having a lot of impact. It should not be a no-brainer where everyone thinks this is going to work. It should be something where half of the company thinks that it's not going to work, Half of the company does think it's going to work. And so you, you pick something where there is a lot of disagreement about what the result is going to be. And then you run the experiment and you broadly share the fact that some people were wrong. And the reason <laughs> that you want an experiment where there's a lot of disagreement is because you want what we call a counterintuitive result. You want something that teaches people that it's sometimes difficult to predict what an experiment is going to do, yeah. because that starts the mindset of the scientific method much more than the optimization mindset. I think optimization is an important part of any experimentation program, sure. but it's often more difficult to get people to think about uh, the counterintuitive result. And that's why I would suggest if you start this flywheel, if you're just starting out with experimentation, pick something that there is a lot of, a lot of disagreement about. You can even have like a little uh, betting uh, or in, informal like uh, <laughs> betting arrangement where people yeah. bet. Well, it's funny because I feel like that's what people are so afraid of, but it feels, you know, what you're saying is just you have to dive in head first, like go ahead and, and you know, you know, show... Uh, the big elephant in the room and the fact that we don't necessarily know yeah that's also idea. that's also i mean that's where a lot of the non the unquantifiable value of experimentation i think that i mean we can we can quantify the winners right if we i mean barring some measurement error and bias etc uh, we could we could try and figure out for those things that win what impact do they have but a lot of the value of experimentation i believe actually comes from two other things which is uh, not shipping bad stuff is a huge, huge value point for experimentation, right? If you have something that would reduce your revenue by 5% and through an experiment, you realize that that's probably a bad idea and you don't ship it. That's a huge amount of value to add to your business, right? It's opportunity cost, but it's still. And the other amount of value is uh, figuring out strategically going forward what you should invest in. So figuring out that uh, a team... Uh, probably should be working on something else because this feature doesn't really add value to customers' lives. It's mm -hmm. a hugely important aspect of the experimentation value. But again, it's very difficult to quantify that because it's difficult to say, well, this team is no longer working on this product and the value of them not wasting time is what? Right? How, do you, how do you even begin to think about what value that adds? Incredible. 
Lucas, thank you so much. Uh, I feel like I had like four years worth of, <laughs> of experimentation, uh, insights in like one hour. So uh, amazing. Um, any, any last thoughts, any final thoughts or, or advice for, for anyone? I think you've said quite a bit, but if you had to sum it up in one, one sentence. Uh, start small. Start small. Rome, Rome wasn't built in a day. And I think the, the, the nice thing, like we talked about the different levels of experimentation. If you think about the scientific method or the build measure loop, it doesn't have to be complicated, right? It doesn't have to be an A-B test. A lot of things, especially important things for your business can be tested using other methods. And yes, A-B testing is super powerful and it's, uh, it's super scalable. But to get the mindset going, it's often more useful to think about the, that higher level and then to sort of obsess about the statistics. Sure. Lucas, thank you so much. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to reading this paper. Can you uh, state the title? And uh, so that way our readers connect. If, I, if I remember, uh, it takes a flyable to fly, kickstarting and keeping the A-B testing momentum. Great. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Thank you so much for spending time with us. If you're looking for more insights on experimentation, be sure to subscribe to the 1000 Experiments Club wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening and see you next time.